0: Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact, and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the America's program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. Stories about Mexico's violence and organized crime are not new and have appeared in newspapers from all over the world. What is less known, however, is how women, in particular, are being targeted. In the last two years, homicides rates in Mexico have slightly dropped, mainly because of the pandemic, to just below 44,000 per year. Yet, femicides keep rising. In fact, official femicide numbers have more than doubled since 2015, 10 or 11 women are being killed every single day in Mexico. And to help us understand the failures in Mexico's public security strategy and why the state is turning a blind eye to the women's movement, that it is my pleasure to welcome Lisa Sanchez, the CEO of Mexicans United Against Crime, a non-governmental organization. Lisa, welcome to this episode of Mexico Matters. As a security expert, let me start by asking you, what are the realities in Mexico that are making us all feel so unsafe, but women much more so?
1: Yeah, Mexico has a security crisis that's been facing for about 20 years in which lethal violence has exploded. At the same time, that uh, the number of criminal organizations that we have operating all across the country has also exploded, going from less than 20 criminal organizations dedicated to transnational organized crime to have over 200, in which we can also identify several of them. There are mostly armed forces for hire for other organizations that can be more vertical and more structured. In this particular context of this crisis of lethal violence exploding because of the security strategy that pretty much atomized or or, or divided and multiplied the criminal landscape, we feel more insecure because in, in, in real terms, we are more insecure. There's more risk for us to be victims of crime and of violence. And in particular, women are more exposed to this type of violence because we what we're seeing with women in Mexico is that not only we are exposed to the criminal violence that's been threatening the entire public in Mexico, but also we face the added violence of domestic violence and we face both violence and crime within our private spaces, within our family, within our confidence and trust circles. And we also face this threat and these risks of being victims of crime and lethal violence outside. It's
0: like violence is being used as a low-cost personal resource with no judicial consequences. Lisa, is this fueled by the fact that 9 out of 10 crimes go unpunished?
1: This is not only being fueled by criminal activity and the existence of illegal markets of all sorts, but also by the response of the state itself that has decided to be more reactive to crime and to rely more on the militarization of public security. But it's also very related to the crisis of impunity that we have, in which all of the crimes committed in Mexico have an impunity rate of around 92 to 97 percent.
0: Can you explain why the killing of women only because of our gender is rising at a much higher rate than the national homicides rates? There were more than a thousand femicides last year. What is happening in society that is making us a target?
1: We're seeing basically two phenomena. One is that gender-based violence has increased in Mexico as a response uh, to the advancement of women's rights and to the advancement of Women occupying more and more the public sphere, the public space, going to work, having a political voice that's being heard, organizing and mobilizing to fight for gender equality and women's rights. That has a lot to do with the femicide statistics that you just shared. But we've also seen an underlying phenomena that's a little bit more worrying because it adds up to the gender-based violence that we, as a a macho culture and as a country that doesn't necessarily agree with women being more free and having equal rights, is also causing this increase in violence. And this is the increase in the number of women that are being murdered on the streets using guns or firearms. What we're seeing is that at the beginning of the 2000s, we had only three out of each 10 women that were murdered in Mexico per year being assassinated by a gunshot or by a firearm. What we're seeing now because of this in internal conflict that we just explained a couple of minutes ago is that now six out of 10 women are being murdered in Mexico using a firearm. And this is not only the uh, result of women being in the wrong place at the wrong time, for example, and being collateral victims, as they're called, of this particular armed conflict on the streets. That's one of the many reasons. But it's also that we have a problem of gun control in Mexico that, according to some statistics provided by the foreign office. We in Mexico calculate that we have around 16 16 million illegal guns being used by civilians. So these particular guns in the hands of regular criminals, organized criminals, but also civilians and regular people that don't necessarily solve their conflicts Uh, through institutional means because of the distrust in the criminal justice system, for example, or even in the administrative tribunals and authorities that can deal with regular conflict. Women are being more and more murdered by family members, regular criminals, and organized criminal organizations using these fire guns.
0: Why are these murders allowed to go unpunished? What is the impunity rate in the country?
1: Femicides, for example, or the assassination of women or violent deaths of women face two particular problems. One is that they face the exact same impunity rates of all homicides in Mexico, that even if they're investigated immediately, they have the obligation, all sorts of authorities at the local, state and federal level to being, to investigate these crimes are around 92% meaning that only no, around 8 out of 100 homicides committed in the country are fully investigated, and only 2 out of 100 homicides are effectively punished by a, a firm sentencing after a, a trial and after an investigation process. That is the same for violent deaths and assassinations of men and women. But uh, when it comes to the gender-based violence or the femicides committed against women just for, the, for, for being women, what we also face is the lack of capacity that the state has to actually classify these deaths as femicides, as gender-based crimes because of deficiencies in legislation, because of this, of deficiencies in defining the criminal conduct, within the penal codes, for example, at the state level. So what we have is an uneven definition and an heterogeneous definition of what a femicide is. There are typified and classified in different penal codes across the country differently. And therefore, what we have is just a tendency for criminal authorities over the criminal justice system to actually classify these deaths, even if they are suspected of being gender-based crimes, as regular violent deaths or as regular homicides. And therefore, what we don't necessarily have is through the investigations of these behaviors and these crimes, effective prevention policies that can tackle and address the underlying issues that are motivating men, mostly, to commit these hate crimes against women.
0: You spoke about the macho culture and the threats that certain men feel as women take stronger roles within society. But these crimes are impacting us all, that is, not only us women, but also our fathers, our brothers, and our friends. And yet it appears that there is no political incentive to fight against it. It also appears that society is being permissive of this. Why is that, Lisa?
1: Yeah, I would would say that there are... Uh, Many, many factors that can explain this, but I will try to focus on three of them. I think one is the misconception of many men of what feminism and the women's movement really mean in the sense that they actually feel it as an attack against men or as a fight to eliminate some rights that men have in favor of giving those rights or transferring those rights and privileges to women. And that's not the case. And I think that we as a society, what we have is the obligation of provoking a public debate that can better explain what feminism is about and what feminism actually looks for or or wants to achieve as a political goal, which is just equality, the same rights that men have women could actually enjoy them and be fully integrated into society, not only in productive terms, but also in sharing the responsibilities of children and the elderly and, you know, the household. The other thing is that we actually have a public discussion and a reaction from the federal government in the person and in the figure of the president that continues to uh, replicate cliches and stigmas against women and to um, assign them a very traditional role that it's no longer applicable for many, many women in the country. So, for example, the president says, who has the responsibility of actually not having a criminal at home and having educated and raised a criminal at home? It's the responsibility of moms. It's the responsibility of the mother. Who has the responsibility of taking care of small children? It's not the government through daycare. It's the responsibility of grandmothers. Grandmothers and women in retirement no, have the responsibility of helping the other women who have children to take care of, of these particular babies. And then finally, he stigmatizes the feminist movement by saying, that it's a conservative force that is supporting the women's movement in order to criticize his government, to destabilize his government, and that he's not going to allow that uh, women actually uh, have these demands and he's not going to address them as valid uh, counterparts because it's all part of this complot to, to destabilize his government and to criticize his, his own figures.
0: It seems like an oxymoron to me to pair a women's movement with the conservatives. But let me move on into another question. Is there a specific ethnic, socioeconomic, or age group that is being particularly targeted?
1: No, and that's a very good question, Mariana, because what we're seeing by analyzing the data is that um, women are being targeted in different ways, uh, depending, for example, the age group that they belong to. So, for example, women that are being assassinated by a firearm or, or a gunshot normally are younger than men who are assassinated the same way. But what we're also seeing is another sort of crime committed against women and another risk for their safety and security, which is abducting of women, women that are being disappeared by particular actors. It's not enforced uh, disappearance, but literally they're being kidnapped and abducted. In this particular crisis that is related to human trafficking, that it's relating to sexual exploitation and other forms of criminal organized crime operations, it's targeting specifically women uh, from the age of 12 to the age of 18 years old. So adolescent women in Mexico are facing an added crisis of disappearance, of abduction, kidnapping, And um, what we have also seen in the data is that um, these women come from a bunch of specific states.
0: Why is it that so many families are conducting their own investigations to try to find their loved ones as they complain about authorities being corrupt, incompetent, or even being aligned with criminal organization? What is the state of the criminal justice system and what is affecting its ability to prosecute crime effectively?
1: Boy, there are a lot of structural programs affecting the criminal justice system in Mexico, but I would say that we have identified at least two main problems. One is the lack of gender and intersectional perspectives training for the operators of the criminal justice system that what often do to the families or to the direct victims of violence when they're women is to re-victimize them. Why? Because normally if a family reports to the authority that a woman has been disappeared or kidnapped or abducted or killed, and they even provide information on the aggressor or the circumstances in which this crime happened, the authority normally responds that probably the victim was to blame for what happened to her, that probably if the the woman, for example, is an adolescent, she probably just went away and ran away with a boyfriend or she's trying to scare the parents or it's a rebellion phase uh, that she's going to come back the next day. And they actually lose and waste the first 72 hours in which every investigation leading to finding a a woman that has been victim of abduction, kidnapping or disappearance, they're not used to actually start the investigation and try to find the best leads that can ensure that the investigation is actually successful and that we can have that particular victim back and then having that victim getting access to justice and providing all the services that we need. So one is, is this lack of training and this lack of sensitivity that causes re-victimization when we're denouncing a crime in the criminal justice system affecting in particular um, women. The other part of the problem is a more structural problem affecting the investigation and the solving and the punishing of all crimes in Mexico, which is the lack of capacity of our criminal justice system to, for example, have enough resources to identify a body in in terms of forensics, in terms of physical facilities to actually safeguard, for example, evidence We've seen a forensic crisis in Mexico in which many states don't even have enough refrigerators to you know, keep the bodies that they found uh, in good conditions so the investigations and the autopsies, for example, can be conducted without the evidence degrading and without the bodies literally being rotted in the hands of the authority.
0: Instead of embracing a burgeoning women's movement, President López Obrador has actually clashed against it. He barricaded himself inside the National Palace as thousands of women marched in Mexico City last March, crying for help and demanding not equal rights as we see in other countries, but basic justice, basic survival, and the protection just to be able to go out on the streets and come back home safe. Can you tell us what are these women actually demanding, Lisa?
1: Yeah, President Andrés Manuel López Obrador has been fighting with the women's movement ever since he was elected president. I think there are many reasons for that. Uh, one is that it's it seems to be the only social movement that's been challenging effectively Andres Manuel Obsobrador's government with arguments, with examples and with evidence. That's one. But the second reason I think Andres Manuel Obsobrador hates the, the women's movement so much is that women have been effectively been taking the streets and organizing in the streets and protesting on the streets, which was supposed to be Amlo's torch AMLO is the only one that seems to have the legitimacy to actually occupy the streets and channel this energy of social movements as a leader of the opposition for many years. And now that women are doing it and he is in power, he feels threatened and he feels somehow challenged in that legitimacy to to, to occupy and channel the energies of the people on the streets in particular. But this movement of women, as you said, Mariana, they're not fighting for something extraordinary. They're basically demanding that the the basic rights granted by the Mexican constitution, such as the right to life and the right to live a peaceful existence and the right to be protected from ordinary crime, organized crimes or crime, all sorts of violence committed against women for gender reasons are effectively addressed that the government recognizes the dimension of the problem. That's one of the basic demands. We cannot address these issues if you continue to uh, neglect the fact that these issues exist. They persist and they're growing. So just one of the demands is please accept that these problems are happening in Mexico and that the dimension of them is much bigger than what governments want to accept or say it is. Uh, The second demand is basically safety. We don't feel safe as women in Mexico, um, not only because of the risks that are associated with criminal activity and organized crime and the conflict that we live in most of the states in Mexico, but because we cannot feel safe at home. And the pandemic demonstrated that when we had to be locked down and we had to stay at home and not go outside and not having the safety net of being at work or being at school. We were locked up with our own assaultants, with our own aggressors. And so this is another demand of the feminist movement. We want to feel safe at home. We want gender-based violence to be punished, to be prevented, and we want a society that can accept and deal with the fact that we have the same rights, and that it's not okay for our partners, for our parents, for our siblings, for our children, for our bosses, for our colleagues at work to sexually harass us, to sexually assault us, to exert violence, not only physically, but also economically, but also symbolically, socially exerting terror, psychological terror on us just because. We go out and work just because we want men to help within the household, just because we want to go and study uh, abroad, just because we want to freely exert our sexuality and so on and so forth.
0: The persistence of these crimes is in stark contrast to recent gains made by the women's movement in Mexico. Last year, the Mexican Supreme Court unanimously ruled that it was unconstitutional to punish abortion as a crime. It was a landmark ruling that cleared the way for the legalization of abortion across the country. Now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned in the United States, do you think Mexico will get an influx of women from Texas and other states coming to Mexico to get an abortion, and will it be safe for them?
1: I think that there's a very big possibility that Mexico becomes a destination for American women who wants to, who want to interrupt a pregnancy to actually come and do it here in the States, which is legal. I think that Mexico not only has these historical rulings of the Supreme Court protecting the right to end a pregnancy and to abort, but also have The facility of having many NGOs and groups of women that offer support, counseling, psychological support for women who are actually going to undergo a procedure of this sort. We were seeing right after the abolishment of Roe versus Wade in the U.S. that many analysts started mapping how fast the right to abortion will be banned in many states in the U.S., and the enormous distance that a woman from a place in which was illegal will actually have to travel and cross to just get to another state within the United States where it will still be legal and she would have the right to actually have an abortion there and those distance became so big depending on how fast the map can and will move in the US that many women will actually have better access and much faster access and have shorter distance to go through if they come to Mexico to do it than if they actually go to another state within the United States to do it. Now, the second part of the question is what really should worry all of us, not only American citizens, but also Mexican citizens. Will they be safe? That is the thing. And it's the underlying problem that we want to make visible through the women's movement in Mexico. It's not only that we are granted the rights at the legal level, let's say, on the law, it's also that we can exercise those rights freely and securely by not you know, having the risk of being aggressed, killed, violated, and so on and so forth on the streets while trying to go to exercise a right that was just granted by our, our Supreme Court.
0: We have been talking about femicides, but let me now move into other crimes. Enforced disappearances. There are almost 100,000 missing persons in Mexico today, and we have one of the highest rates of human trafficking in the world. None of these are new problems in Mexico, we know that, but Lopez Obrador is espousing hugs and not bullets strategy, while Mexico has become more militarized than ever. What is the strategy actually, is there a strategy?
1: No one can really explain what is the, the real strategy of these governments in regards to security there is no strategy <laughs> apparently there's not one, but we can we can identify two main pillars of the actions of these government that are supposed to be contributing to better security rates in Mexico. One is the massive investment in social policy, and in particular, the massive investment of public resources into direct transfers for specific groups, trying to support the hypothesis that if you have more transfers and more um, economic aid packages for vulnerable populations, in particular, the young, the elderly families, single women, et cetera, et cetera then you can prevent engagement of these families or these kids in criminal activities later in life. That's one of the pillars that this government is going for.
0: Which assumes that if you're poor, you're more likely to commit a crime.
1: That's one of the one of the problems. Effectively, you're sort of criminalizing poverty because you're assuming that only the poor commit crime, and that's not the case necessarily. Um, But also, it's not a strategy that is preventing crime itself by understanding the phenomena that operate in these vulnerable communities, by by, by understanding the responsibility that some of the decision makers and the public servants that are governing and ruling these particular communities have in allowing, for example, the uh, flourishing of illicit economies Or the corruption that they themselves can be committing and therefore enabling criminal activity in their own territories, just blaming the poor for being poor. So there is not an effective prevention strategy that's based on evidence and that has specific programs addressing the reasons and the enablers that then permit the flourishing of these criminal activities. And on the other hand, you have another pillar that's also being proven very problematic, not in this particular government, but since 2006, when it started being used, which is addressing the criminality issue as only an organized crime problem that can be solved by using more and more soldiers and effectives from the uh, armed forces uh, to do police work and to sort of take back control of these communities and these territories by just deploying them and forcing them to do policing, forcing them to do uh, targeting of specific populations as if they were criminal just because of the way they look. So profiling to trying to guess which of the people that are in these particular communities are part of criminal gangs or not and by trying to deter crime by just using the presence of the armed forces and the military in public security tasks that normally are uh, reserved for police forces. The problem of this is it became a reactive strategy again, in, in comparison to a more comprehensive strategy that includes prevention, that includes justice administration that includes the fighting of corruption that includes many other uh, elements that actually enable criminal activity in Mexico. And the, the other problem with that particular strategy is that evidence shows that this deployment of the military, this militarization of public security and this use of a reactive strategy that is based on patrolling and detention, of people and firing and, and creating conflict with allegedly members of organized crime organizations is that the military also commits abuses, human rights violations, such as enforced disappearances no that have been increasing over time ever since they took over public security. So not only now, you don't necessarily have a strategy that is effectively preventing crime, but you're also reacting to crime in a way that increases violence, increases the participation of state forces in the commission of crimes and human rights violations and forces criminal organizations to hide the evidence of their crimes, which reinforces the incentives for them to disappear people instead of just robbing people, Or for killing people and then disappear their bodies and and disappear all evidence, including behaviors like dissolving bodies in acid, just because uh, they can't do it. And it's better for them to not keep any of the evidence because without a body, there's not a crime.
0: What happens in Mexico directly affects the security of the United States? As you mentioned, drug gangs are fragmenting, and they have diversified into other crimes, including migrant and human trafficking. Should the U.S. be concerned?
1: The U.S. should be concerned, not only because uh, criminality is one of the main drivers of other social problems like illegal immigration, But it should be concerned uh, mostly because in a country like Mexico, it's unacceptable to have such impunity rates, particularly right after the United States invested for over a decade in the transition from the previous criminal justice system to the new model of a more efficient criminal justice system, that's the accusatory system that we started implementing in Mexico three presidential terms ago. Um, The US has invested a lot in cooperation, a lot in intelligence, a lot in the transition of the criminal justice system. But I think it hasn't engaged a lot in the conversation of whether this particular strategy of militarizing public security has actually achieved any of its goals or if it has created more negative consequences than originally intended, and if it's sustainable in the long run to actually continue doing the same, knowing that instead of ending crime, multiply the number of criminal organizations that are dedicated to organized crime, and that instead of reducing the levels of violence and criminality, made lethal violence explode, And instead of containing illegal markets, actually made criminal organizations diversified. And that evidently has been fueling other problems that then can be part of the domestic problems the United States have, such as internal uh, forced displacement of entire communities in many states of Mexico, impunity, corruption, macro criminality Mm -hmm. networks that actually enable these particular crimes and affect local populations in Mexico in a way that also indirectly affects productivity, cooperation, and and the goodwill of both the people in the U.S. and Mexico to actually have a, a productive, effective, and friendly bilateral relation.
0: You say a lot of resources have certainly been invested and we have very little to show for. To me, as Lopez Obrador intensifies the militarization of public security in Mexico, there's also something that concerns me. He's also allowing the military to participate in the economic activities. He, as you know, they're not only responsible for managing the ports, they're also building critical infrastructure, even building luxury apartments with very little oversight. This should be of great concern to Mexico and maybe also for the U.S. Unfortunately, we have come to the end of this episode. Lisa, thank you very much for participating with us. My name is Mariana Campero. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify.